making sure that we're in fellowship with the Lord. That's handled through 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is sort of a prayer I was handed the other day. Dear Lord, so far today, God, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. From then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. <laughs> Somebody the other day asked me if, uh, if maybe there was a doctrine called prebound. You know you're going to sin, so you confess it ahead of time, and that way you stay in fellowship. No, I don't think we can, uh, we can find that in the Scriptures, although at times there, I think we all wish that we could rationalize our sin that way. We uh, rebound by admitting to God, acknowledging to God our, our sins. The point of salvation, we are entered into a permanent relationship with Jesus Christ. We are said to be in Christ. We are placed in Christ through the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's our eternal relationship. Then there's a temporal relationship, our relationship in time. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and in fellowship, then when we sin, we are out of fellowship. The Bible calls this carnality. In the status of carnality, we are controlled by the sin nature. And the only way to be restored to fellowship is through 1 John 1, 9, to admit or acknowledge our sin. This is not something that is emotional. People have trouble with emotion today. We live in a society that's becoming more and more emotional, and we want to relate to everything on the basis of emotion. Yet, as long as we do that, we'll never understand God's Word, because God's Word tries over and over again to move emotion out of the Christian life. That doesn't mean, we're going to look at this in a minute, but that doesn't mean that emotion is sin. What that means is that emotion is not the basis for making decisions. It's not the criteria for the spiritual life. It's not the criteria for our relationship with God. We can feel down. We might feel depressed. We might feel discouraged. We can have a whole array of emotions that do not mean that we're out of fellowship or that God's mad at us or anything else. They're just our emotional status. We have to rely upon what God's Word says. And when God's Word is more real to us than how we feel... At that point, we know that we're operating on the faith rest drill. So part of understanding Scripture is the use of 1 John 1, 9 to get back in fellowship and knowing that if we have done that, no matter how we feel, no matter how guilty or sorry or upset we might be over some sin we committed that shocked, shocked us or hurt somebody else, God has forgiven us. It's no longer an issue. We need to isolate that sin and we need to move on. So before we get started, we need to make sure that we are indeed in fellowship and filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of rebound, and then we'll look at God's Word. Father, we thank you for your provision of confession, that by acknowledging our sins, we have complete and total forgiveness We know that we're in fellowship with you and filled with the Holy Spirit and we can move forward in the spiritual life. That as long as we're alive, no matter what we've done, you have a plan for us and you have a provision for us. And that starts with confessing our sins and continues with taking in the Word of God, 
taking in your word, applying it in our lives, letting it reside in our souls, and then applying it in every, every detail of our lives. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would make these truths clear to us and the Holy Spirit would use this in our lives to drive us towards the high ground of spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before we get started in our study of James this morning, I got a, a, a letter in the mail this week that had some questions in it, and that's fine. I, I, uh, I hope that anybody who has some questions would feel free to write them down. You know, this was anonymous, and that's fine. It keeps personalities out of it. I don't mind that at all. In fact, sometimes it's just good. It doesn't matter who's asking the questions. I find that usually if one person's asking the question, there's 10 or 15 others that are asking the same question. If it's, if it's a little bit uh, foggy to one person, it's probably foggy to two or three more. So uh, I think these are important questions to spend a little bit of time on, so we'll do that. The first question had to do with um, uh, some comments I made about emotion and emotionalism. And this person asked the question to just clarify that, why I was against emotion. Okay? I want to clarify that. And then she listed, or he, I don't know who wrote it, um, he listed uh, several passages of Scripture that would, uh, to raise some questions. Now, let's look at these passages. Because the whole issue here, first of all, let's, uh, let's clarify a couple of things. Em- what is emotion? Emotion is a capacity of the human soul that is a responder or appreciator. That's emotion. Emotion is good. God created it as part of the makeup of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before uh, sin ever cast its shadow on the human race. Emotionalism though is bad. Emotionalism is when you start making decisions in life based on emotion and using emotion as a criteria for your relationship with God, your spiritual life, what to do, what not to do in life. That's when all of a sudden, instead of thinking things through objectively, you're thinking them through subjectively in terms of emotion. Now, God is never emotional. God never gets involved in emotionalism. These are totally contrary to the character and makeup of God. But a lot of people are confused about this, and a lot of theologians are confused about this, so no wonder people are confused. A couple of the passages that this person asked me about, uh, Lamentations 3.22 and 23, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Well, first of all, what we have to understand is the word that's translated loving kindness is from the Hebrew word chesed. It's a hard C-H-E-S-E-D and it means uh, faithful love. Now, love for God is never emotional. It's not emotion. It's not based on emotion. Emotion comes and goes. You know how your emotions are. One day you're one way, the next day you're another. Emotion is the most unstable thing in human existence. To say that God is emotional or has emotion or that the love of God is based on emotion borders on heresy. God's love is not based on any circumstance, on any feeling or anything like that. In fact, I'm not sure that we are right in even using the word emotion in describing the character of God. 
the love of God is not based on emotion. We talk about John 3.16, For God so loved the world. That means that talks about care, talks about uh, concern, talks about compassion. But these, only in a post-Freudian, screwed-up, psychotherapeutic society like we live in, are we now defining these terms in, ter- in light of emotion. Nobody else did for 2,000 years or longer. Uh, emotion is, is something that relates to the human soul, and it's a very wonderful thing, but it must be kept in a proper perspective. For emotion, emotion is certainly part of our makeup, and there's nothing wrong with it in the right, in the right perspective. Now, the other word that's used here in Lamentations 3.22 and 23 is for his compassions never fail. Now, I would bet if I took a poll here and I said, is compassion within the realm of cognitive or within the realm of the emotive, that 80% of you would say it's within the realm of the emotive. Uh, American Heritage Dictionary defines compassion as the deep awareness of the suffering of another coupled with the desire to relieve it. What is awareness? Is awareness cognitive or emotive? It's cognitive. It's intellectual. It's rational. It's not emotive. We don't understand the English language very well, so we're investing words with meanings they don't possess. And so we then end up misunderstanding God and misunderstanding Scripture because we misunderstand the, uh, the, the English language. And that's understandable. I mean, we all do that. And um, to give you a little background on this, I got involved in a theolog- running theological discussion that started about five years ago on whether or not God had emotions. And at that time, I, I was convinced that God did have emotion because I had been taught that in terms of the image of God, God possessed intellect, will, and emotion, and that these three were what God communicated to the human soul, which made it in the image of God. And so I got involved in this discussion, thinking through it more and more, and just looking up the dictionary term emotion and what that is. If you read what the dictionary says about emotion, you would never attribute that to God whatsoever. Never. Um, I realized something historically that it wasn't until about a hundred years ago that any theologians did this. In fact, up until about a hundred years ago, whenever theologians wrote, I mean for for 1900 years, whenever they wrote about the image of God, they talked about the rational and moral, we would read that to conscience, rational and moral capacities of man and volitional. And that's it. Never a discussion about emotion. Now, the thinking person is going to say, gosh, did something happen in our culture a hundred years ago that would get people to where they would start thinking about emotion as part of the makeup of God? Hmm, did anything happen about a hundred years ago? Well, there was a guy by the name of Sigmund Freud who came up with a whole theory of psychotherapy. And he made emotion a major feature in psychotherapy. And his thinking has permeated Western civilization. So that only towards the end of the 19th century and up to the present do you have uh, people thinking about God in terms of emotion. And then you don't, all they do is state it. They can't define it or articulate it well at all. Period. So... The concept of compassion and love are mental, not emotional. 
Another passage, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Okay, now what in that passage would indicate anything about God having emotion? Nothing. What we learn is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is undiminished deity and pure humanity. As pure humanity, he has a human soul. He has a mentality. He has an emotion. He has self-consciousness. He has conscience. And he has volition. So Jesus Christ is the subject of that passage, and it's talking about how he can sympathize. And the term sympathy in the Greek comes from the Greek sympatheso, which has to do with a mutual understanding. The dictionary says it's a mutual understanding or affection, such that what affects one affects another. And there it uses that word mutual understanding. It also says affection, but we won't. But that's clear that Jesus Christ had emotion as part of his humanity. But it focuses on the concept of understanding. Once again, that is part of understanding is part of the cognitive function of the human soul. 1 Peter 5, 7, which says, Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. What does care mean? Look it up in the dictionary. It means to be concerned for, to be interested and involved in something or with someone. Once again, we're talking about cognitive activity. So what we see in all of these passages so far is that um, these are not emotive terms. These are terms that have to do with somebody's cognitive thinking, with, with their intellection. It's not emotion. Now, there's three words we have to pay attention to to understand some things that Scripture says about God. The first word, and we talked about this some last week, is a zoomorphism. Now, zoomorphism is a figure of speech. That's when you use something, not you're not talking literally. A figure of speech, like a metaphor or simile, figure of speech is attributing to God the physical attributes of an animal that God does not actually possess. For example, the wings hiding under the wings of God, or last week we looked at one of the Psalms that talked about hiding under the pinions, uh, protected by the pinions of God. Well, God does not have wings like, a, like an eagle. He does not have pinions. This is just using this figure of speech in order to illustrate an aspect of God's character. It is taking something that God does not actually possess, very key phrase, that God does not actually possess, in order to communicate within our frame of reference something about the nature of God. Now, the next important word is anthropomorphism. If a zoomorphism applies to God uh, some physical feature of an animal, an anthropomorphism applies to God the physical feature of, of, a, of a man, an anthropomorphism. It's language of accommodation that ascribes to God human physical characteristics which he does not actually possess right there, he does not actually possess, to explain his essence, his policy, his acts and decisions in terms of human anatomy. This includes phrases like the face of God in Psalm 11.7, the eyes of God in Psalm 5.5, the ears of God in Psalm 130, verse 2, and the arms of God in Exodus 15.16. All of these, there are many other examples 
in Scripture, for example, the phrase, the eyes of God go to and fro throughout the whole earth, is merely talking about his omniscience and his omnipresence. He always knows what's going on everywhere. You can't hide from God. He's present to every aspect of his creation. And then the third word is anthropopathism. This word has to do with emotion. It comes from the Greek pathos, which has to do with emotion, and can be defined as the language of accommodation that ascribes to God human passions, emotions, thoughts, and attitudes which he does not actually possess to reveal and explain himself, divine policy, acts, and decisions to the finite mind of man. Examples include God's grief over sin in Genesis 6.6, 6, God's repentance, he's immutable, so he never changes, Exodus 32.14, King James, God's vengeance, Isaiah 1.24. Uh, one would never ascribe to God uh, that he's actually sinned, but it communicates to man something about the nature of God. Hatred, uh, in the passage, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We would not ascribe to God uh, even human sin. But it is the ascription to God of human emotions in order to understand the policy of God of rejecting Esau and accepting uh, Isaac. It does not mean that God actually hates it in that passage. That doesn't even have in view the actual love of God. It's merely juxtaposing love and hate, holding them up as opposites in order to illustrate the concept of acceptance and rejection. Uh, anger in Deuteronomy 29, 23, jealousy and Exodus 34:14. So these passages all indicate, and this is frequently happens whenever you have passages that talk about uh, or seem to ascribe emotion to God, they are in, in fact uh, anthropopathism. So emotionalism is something we should avoid because what we're doing is we're, we're letting our emotions rule our lives instead of the doctrine that's in our soul. So emotionalism must always be uh, fought against. Uh, second question this person asked was a comment I made about uh, the song He Lives. And the third, the, the chorus that says, uh, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Now, it's very clear that the, in the passages this person I put down here, uh, John 14, 17, and Ezekiel 36, 27, and Luke 11, 13, all relate to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'm not even talking about a better passage than the ones the person listed, which is in Romans which talks about uh, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed sons of God. Okay, but that's a non-verbal witness. How do you know? How do you know that's the issue? You ask me how I know he lives. Okay? That's the issue. How do you know Jesus Christ rose from the dead? You know it because 500 people saw it. He, he, the scriptures tell us so. We have eyewitness accounts. That's how we know. Now, after you become a believer, you have the witness, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, but that is to confirm the objective witness of the Word of God. When you start running around in the Christian life saying, well, the Spirit's leading me to do this and the Spirit's leading me to do that, if you don't have objective evidence telling you this, one of my seminary professors used to say rather crudely, if you, you can't define the difference between this internal moving of the Holy Spirit and death, don't blame it on God. Because that's really the problem. A lot of people are blaming all kinds of things on God just because they feel something is what they ought to do, and they're claiming that this emotional feeling is the Holy Spirit. 
Well, you don't find that anywhere in the Scriptures. In fact, God never does anything subjectively that He doesn't give objective, external verification for anywhere in the Scriptures. God is not a God of just pure internal subjectivity where you say, I feel like God's leading me to do this without clear, external, objective validation. When you don't have that, you're just in mysticism. You're no better than the ancient mystics or the Hindus or the Buddhists or anybody else that's running around in mysticism. So we have to be very careful when we make claims, why do we know Christianity is true? Not because we feel it's true, but because there's objective evidence. That's what the whole Gospel of John is about. John says, I'm going to give you seven specific signs which are going to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm not going to tell you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because I had a great experience with Him. Paul doesn't come up in Galatians and say, as we're going to see this Sunday and the next couple of Sundays, I know Jesus is the Savior, and I know the Gospel because I had this uh, subjective experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's objective. He fulfilled Scripture. There's over a hundred different prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled literally in the person and work of Jesus Christ at the first advent. You can go passage by passage by passage. This is very, very important. Third question this person asked, comment I made about uh, children being unacceptable to God. I didn't say children were unacceptable to God. That's a misunderstanding. I said, you've got to realize that that cute little baby you have is a sinner. From the moment they come out of the womb, they have a sin nature. And they are condemned. They have a sin nature. That Adam's original sin has been imputed to that sin nature. And they will commit personal sin because they have a sin nature. They are born a sinner. Every one of us is born condemned by Adam's original sin. Now, babies are no more acceptable to God than you are, apart from Jesus Christ. God loved everybody and sent His Son to go to the cross to die for every, the sin of every single human being in all of human history. Not because we're acceptable. If you are a child, and the next question asked in this had to do with the age of accountability, which we'll discuss somewhat on Sunday morning. Uh, age of accountability, I think it's any, any time between the age of 2 and 7, once a person's vocabulary reaches a point where they can understand the concepts of the existence of God, right and wrong, and, and they, they, they can be held accountable for, for, for that. And at that point, they are under uh, judgment. If they die before that point, they will instantly go to be with the Lord in heaven because they can't understand the gospel, so they can't be held accountable. But we don't know exactly when that is for anybody, but God, of course, the passages of this person lists, Mark 10, 13 to 16, uh, Psalm 127, 3 through 5, really doesn't relate. It just talks about God's concern for every single human being. Mark 10, 13 through 16 talks about how uh, Jesus said, don't prevent the children from coming to me. Uh, God, of course, cares about children, but that doesn't mean that they're perfect or sinless or that their sin nature is not a problem. God cares about them, and he died for them just as he does for anybody else. So we should be definitely involved. In fact, I'm a big believer and getting involved in any kind of child evangelism uh, because this is uh, 
I, I find that, you know, statistically speaking, I think 80% of anybody who's a believer uh, came to know the Lord before they were uh, 15 or 18. And I just think that's a wonderful time. I think that's what that passage of Mark 10 is talking about, is that coming to the Lord like with the faith of a child, is that they haven't had time yet to get all screwed up with all kinds of ideas later in life, and they're still very open uh, to understanding understanding everything about uh, about the gospel and that God loves them. So I think that answers most of those questions that, that were asked here. There may have been one more. Um, well, it's always difficult when you're trying to witness to a family member, distant family member, and their parents don't want you to. You just have to weigh that very carefully and just uh, wait till there's a good time when that person is old enough to really understand everything. Um, there's some difficult issues there respecting parental authority, but we also have a higher authority in proclaiming the gospel. John, how about some fans on this? And um, that's important. Now, just some added thoughts here on the Christian life. As we talked about emotion, the Christian life is a system of thinking. Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 addresses this right out of the bat. We have a, an aorist active imperative Count it all joy. Now, the, the aorist active imperative of hegeomai means to add up all the facts. No facts, no doctrine, no facts, no facts, no joy. That's how it works. You've got to add, have something to add up before you can add it up. Count it all joy. Count when you add it up all the facts, all the aspects of the situation. The conclusion is. Joy, count it all joy, fellow believers, when you fall into various tests. And we have seen in the last couple of weeks, looking at 1 Corinthians 10.13, that, that um, there is no test. The accurate translation of that word in 1 Corinthians 10.13 is test, not temptation. A test is the external situation outside of you. A temptation arises inside you in the sin nature which tempts the soul, and when the volition goes negative and yields to the temptation of the sin nature, then you go out of fellowship and you're under the control of sin nature. But the outside circumstances, the adversity, which is the outside pressure, outside pressure on the soul that happens to everybody, when that comes along, it puts pressure on us. But we have to think. Consider is a thinking noun. Count it all joy. Before Happiness is the result. This kind of happiness is the result of what's in the mentality of the soul. It's not emotive. I used the illustration the other day about a friend of mine who came and spoke at a church I was at many years ago. And he's one of these people who's just really up and wired all the time. And somebody said, boy, he just has the joy of the Lord. When the joy of the Lord, he would have that way before he was a believer. That's just his personality type. Don't confuse personality and emotion with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Don't, uh, that, that's something that somebody can have joy and be a very quiet, somber individual. Joy does not have to express itself in certain personality types. That's always the problem. So this is a system of thinking. We have to realize that the spiritual life is a system of thinking. Over and over again, the Bible stresses the importance of thought. Thought. Thinking doctrine. Emotion is never the basis for making decisions or evaluating the Christian life or your relationship with God. Emotion can never learn, can't analyze, can't solve problems, 
and can't produce spiritual growth. Unfortunately, it's easier for most of us, because we're human, to rely on emotion than to invest the energy to concentrate and the discipline to teach ourselves how to think. I used to have a seminary professor that said, hard enough to think, but to think about your thinking, that's really difficult. We don't want to take, put forth that mental sweat to think. We would rather just go with the flow. And once emotion overruns our mentality, doesn't mean that all emotion is sin, but once emotion starts overrunning your mentality, you're just a half step away from yielding to sin nature and getting involved in the whole emotional complex of sin. Once emotion overruns the mentality of the soul, you become dominated by subjectivity, irrationality, and self-absorption. Emotionalism is a major distraction to the spiritual life and will keep you from counting it all joy. When you get into the pressure cooker of adversity, the last thing in the world that is natural, it seems, is to stop, stabilize your thinking, concentrate, focus, and move forward with solid thought. Because what you want to do is just come unglued and frazzled and yield to all of those emotions. Scripture says, For as a man thinks within himself, that is, within his soul, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your mind, and the the Greek word there is phreneo, which means to keep thinking objectively. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Ephesians 4, 23 says, And you be renewed by by means of the Holy Spirit in your mind, in the mentality of your soul doesn't mention emotion. So, over and over again, the Scriptures emphasize this. Philippians 2.5 says, have this attitude, and there we have that same word again, phreneo, it should be translated, have this thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. What enables a believer to think like Jesus Christ? It's the knowledge of doctrine that he had. That knowledge of doctrine is called the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Now, we may have tremendous response, emotional response to doctrine. We may get very excited. We may uh, sometimes get angry because it steps on our toes. Who knows what our emotional response will be to doctrine. But we cannot allow those emotions to dominate our our, our decision-making because then we go on a roller coaster of emotional highs and lows that will absolutely destroy our spiritual life. Remember, Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your emotions. Know what it says? No. By the renewing of your mind, the mentality of your soul, that's where the Christian life takes place. Thinking, thinking, thinking. One of the biggest problems today in spiritual warfare is they're off onto all kinds of tangents. And the real issue in spiritual warfare is what goes on between your ears, not what goes on in the sphere of the demonic. What's happening in your in your mind in terms of your application of doctrine determines everything. So when we come to a passage like this. The issue is doctrine. The issue is what are you thinking in order to produce inner happiness in your soul. Three principles we've stated in the past. To the degree that you base your happiness on people, circumstances, and events, to that degree you are enslaved by those things. Secondly, when you base your happiness on people, circumstances, and events, the details of life, you make someone else or something else in charge of your emotional well-being. And then third, if you base your happiness on the details of life, 
then you will guarantee that you will be miserable and absolute failure in the spiritual life. What we're supposed to do is to pay attention to doctrine and use doctrine to evaluate the test, the circumstances in our life, and add it all up to joy. But to do that, we have to have some understanding, some basic understanding of what the Scriptures teach about suffering. So we talked about the doctrine of adversity and stress. Number one, adversity is the inevitable outside daily pressure of life that attack and seek to penetrate the soul. Stress is the optional inside pressure of the soul caused by reaction to the external principles of adversity. Two, adversity has two categories. Suffering from the law of volitional responsibility, that's what you do to yourself. You make a bad decision and you suffer for it. Just like if you hit your thumb with a hammer, it's going to hurt. You make certain bad decisions in the spiritual or moral realm, it's going to come back to haunt you eventually. Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And then uh, also in divine discipline, which is then God entering the picture and increasing the suffering as a way of punishment for our uh, negative volition and disobedience. Adversity also comes as suffering for blessing. And this is when we're in fellowship and God uses that suffering in order to accelerate our spiritual growth. That's what is the subject of these, first, or these, these verses in James, verses 2 through 4. Third, adversity is what the external circumstances of life do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Fourth, adversity is inevitable. You can't avoid it. You will always run into it. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Stress is optional and depends on your negative volition. If you do not know doctrine, if you do not apply doctrine, then the bottom line is you're going to have stress in your soul, and that is tantamount to the sin nature control of the soul. And that's point five. Stress in the soul always results in sin nature control of your life, and if left unchecked, it will reverse your spiritual growth, and you'll end up a neurotic and eventually psychotic Christian on the road to the sin unto death. So we look at the fact that God provided ten stress busters to avoid converting adversity into stress. begins with number one, which is confession. Use the 1 John 1, 9 to get us back in fellowship so we can have the power of the Holy Spirit and grow towards spiritual maturity. That's number two, the filling of the Holy Spirit. is a command in Ephesians 5.18. The faith rest drill is mixing the promises of God with faith and applying those in our life. Then the fourth problem-solving device is doctrinal orientation where we orient our life to the Bible doctrine. That presupposes you know doctrine and you come to Bible class in order to study doctrine. Then fifth is grace orientation, which means you understand the basic principle that God operates on the policy of grace and it is unearned and undeserved and our relationship with God is based on everything that He did for us on the cross and it is not based on who and what we are, but who He is and what He did through Jesus Christ and everything following flows from an understanding of grace. A lot of people talk about grace, but very few churches or denominations understand grace. If grace means a free gift, then that means I give you something. I say, okay, I used to do this with kids with a children's sermon. I'd pull out a dollar bill, maybe a day out of $5 bill, and say, who wants a $5 bill? I'd find some kid who raises his hand and reach out and take it. I say, okay, it's yours. Do you have to do anything for that? No. I just gave it to you, right? It's yours. Take it. You know, go buy whatever you want to with it. That's a free gift. The other day I heard somebody pontificating on television about grace that they partook of certain sacraments and therefore received grace. Well, that's kit for tat. That's working. That you do something, you get something. 
if you have to do anything to get grace, it isn't grace. It's works. Period. If you have to go to church, if you have to take communion, if you have to give money, if you have to get married, if you have to be celibate, if you have to help the poor, any of those things in order to get grace, it's not grace. It's not a free gift. But we're jaded in our society because we get all these offers in the mail and on the telephone where, the, where, where they call up and they say, well, we want to give you a free gift. Well, what do I have to do for it? Because you always have to do something for it. Nobody ever gives you a free gift, so nobody understands that a free gift is a free gift. We've lost sight of that in our society. Grace orientation means we understand that everything is who and what God is and not who and what we are. Then we move to a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We understand that all the decisions we make today determine who and what we will be for eternity. A personal love for God the Father, followed by unconditional love for all mankind, which means that we treat people on the basis of how God treated us, who He is and what Christ did for us. That we forgive others just as God forgave us on the basis of Jesus Christ. Occupation with Christ, that's our focus. And then inner happiness. And inner happiness is our subject. How do we count it all joy? Which leads us to the doctrine of joy or inner happiness. Point number one. Joy is a translation of the Greek word kara. Not a bad translation at that. Just that what happens so often is that we're so used to hearing words that we forget what they mean. So it's important to pick up some synonyms. It's inner happiness, tranquility, contentment in all circumstances. In fact, it may even involve a certain aspect of of animation. That will differ perhaps from personality to personality. Joy translates the Greek word kara, meaning inner happiness, tranquility, contentment, Point two, biblical joy is not an emotion. It's not, period. Forget it. It's not an emotion. It's a mental attitude. Emotion is going to swing with every circumstance and situation. You're going to wake up in the morning, it's going to be cloudy for the 65th day in a row, and you're not going to be very happy. If you live in Seattle, you're going to be tempted to jump off the bridge like everybody else. You know, Seattle has the highest suicide rate of any city in the country because it's cloudy. 90% of the time, and so people feel very down and depressed. But circumstances are irrelevant. It's a mental attitude. Unfortunately, we often associate joy with emotions, with uh, stimulation, with excitement, and with anticipation. We associate it with certain people, events, and things things that give us pleasure. But biblical joy is much more than that. This is a fruit of the Spirit a production of the Holy Spirit in our lives as a result of our spiritual growth. How does that work? That means that if you come to Bible class and you learn doctrine and you store that doctrine in your soul and you begin to apply that as a byproduct of that, the Holy Spirit produces certain things in your life, one of which is inner happiness, contentment, and tranquility. When you begin to latch on to what inner happiness is, that it's a result of you... See, if you're not focused... As you begin to learn what it means to be occupied with Christ and to focus on Christ, then what's going to happen is you're, you're, you're not going to be bothered by the details of life. 
This is what was illustrated when uh, Peter walked on the water. He got his eyes off of Christ and onto the, the waves that were coming, the adversity and the trials, and he lost his stability. See, that's what happens. We lose our focus and we begin to lose that sense of contentment and tranquility. So, when we come to a formal definition of joy, joy is a mental attitude by which the spiritually maturing believer, utilizing divine power under the filling of the Holy Spirit, maintains an attitude of optimism, reassurance, animation, and contentment in every circumstance, including adversity. I'll say that again. Joy is a mental attitude by which the spiritually maturing believer, utilizing divine power under the filling of the Holy Spirit, maintains an attitude of optimism, reassurance, animation, and contentment in every circumstance, including adversity. When the spiritual life takes precedence over external circumstances, in other words, when what God says is more real to you than what people in your life are saying, how people in your life are acting, what the circumstances are, or how disappointed you may be, whatever it may be, when the reality, when God's Word is more real to you, than your external circumstances or the people around you. When your eyes are on divine solutions rather than human solutions and human problems, then the result is going to be inner tranquility and contentment and joy. So when we come to James 1, it says, Count it all joy. This is not something for baby believers, even though they can begin to learn this. It primarily involves a maturing believer who's learning doctrine. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests. Talk about joy in John 15, 11. Jesus said these things, that is Bible doctrine, the things that he's been teaching the disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's a profound statement. Jesus says I've been teaching you doctrine so that the joy that I have, my inner happiness and stability will be in you and your joy may be made full. So if you want your joy to be full, how do you get there? By learning and applying doctrine. John 17, 13, Jesus said, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. We actually share the happiness of God. His joy becomes our joy because of the doctrine that we learn. Now in the human realm, there's a pseudo-happiness, a false happiness that's based on emotion. This is completely contrary to divine happiness. Human happiness is temporary, superficial, and depends on the details of life. It depends on a pleasant environment. It depends on stimulating circumstances and enjoyable people. It depends in many ways on having things go the way we want them to go, which is nothing more than arrogance. But such happiness is based on the worst in human experience. It's based on self-absorption. It's based on arrogance. It's based on self-deception. However, all such happiness is transient. It comes and it goes. And once we get done with it, we're going to look somewhere else for a little more stimulation, a little more excitement, and we're just going to ride that roller coaster right into our own self-destruction. Third point on, a third point, or fourth point, I guess, on uh, inner happiness. It's related to the character of God. We see this from the passages we just read, that Plus H is related to the character of God. I always, for years since seminary, I have used this abbreviation for God. It's the Greek letter theta, 
which is the first letter in the word for God, theos. So when I put that up there, now you'll know what that means. But I've done it for so long, it's just unconscious. The character of God. God has always possessed perfect happiness, perfect stability, perfect tranquility. He can never be diminished. Not, he's not going to learn something that surprises him or changes his happiness. There's no circumstance. He's always known everything. Nothing can add to, destroy, or, increase, or, or diminish God's happiness. He possesses a perfect happiness. He's uh, immutable, and it will never change. That was point three. Point four is that inner happiness, our inner happiness is related to our orientation to God's plan. The only way to orient to God's plan is to learn doctrine. God's plan is God's blueprint for your life. And it's contained in the Scriptures. And the only way you can know it is to know the Scriptures. It begins at salvation and proceeds through the daily learning and assimilation of Bible doctrine in your soul. Point number five. You enter into the plan of God through faith alone. Maybe we can abbreviate this. Faith alone and Christ alone. We're using that so often. Faith alone and Christ alone. That's where it starts. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Once we enter into God's plan, then we have to proceed. What do you do after salvation? The really sad thing is that so many people think they've made it once they're saved. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I don't care where I am in heaven as long as I'm there. Well, I tell you, once you get there, you're going to, if that's your thinking, you're going to truly regret it. And there will be regret at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll get into that at some time, but there will be regret at the judgment seat of Christ. Afterward, God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain and no more sorrow. But there will will be a time at the evaluation seat of Jesus Christ when we see all our, uh, perhaps if we're losers and everything burns up, there's going to be some real sorrow and sadness at the judgment seat of Christ for missed opportunities that we, that we all have. But we enter into God's plan through faith alone in Christ alone, and then we proceed by the study and assimilation of God's Word. How does that happen? This is Operation Z. Pastor, teacher, teach.
under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Communicates doctrine, and he believes it. It's transferred by the Holy Spirit to the right lobe of the soul, which is called the mind. The Greek word is nous. N-O-U-S. This is called in the Bible gnosis, or just basic academic knowledge. Everything starts with academic knowledge. You always hear some idiot come along and say, well, if we just applied all that we knew, we would be much better believers. So we just need to, what he's really saying is we need to know a whole lot less so we can just, because we don't apply all that we know anyway. Well, that's true about every arena of life. You know about Of all that you know in any given subject, any arena in which you operate, your sum total of your knowledge is 100%. And on any given day, you'd probably only use about 1% or 5% of that knowledge. But we all have to have a vast reservoir of knowledge from which that application is drawn. And everything we learn in life starts academically. So it starts with academic knowledge, and then when we accept it by faith, we believe it, We say, Lord, that's what I believe. It is transferred by the Holy Spirit into the right lobe of the soul, which is called the cardia. This is the heart. The heart has nothing to do in the Bible with emotion. It has to do with the innermost part of the mentality of the soul. And it is there that it is stored and it circulates and the Holy Spirit uses that and brings it to our recall so that we can apply it in times of testing. So the plan of God begins at the cross, and it proceeds proceeds then through Operation Z. Point number seven. Sharing the inner happiness of God is a result of the production of the Holy Spirit in your life, which comes as a result of applying the doctrine that's stored in your soul. So first of all, you have to come and you have to go through the discipline of learning. You have to go to the local church, like a classroom. You have to sit down, you have to listen, you have to take notes. You learn it. Then you believe it. And it's stored in your soul. Then it is then it is recalled. Then you have to decide to use it. You have to decide to apply it. So volition comes to bear once again. As a result of that, when you go through this process, the Holy Spirit is going to produce some things as a result of that. You don't go out and try to produce these things. The Holy Spirit, is, is, when you do this, you begin to grow spiritually. Just like you grow up as an adult. You give the child uh, milk and pablum and vitamins and then other forms of food. And as they take that in, they imperceptibly begin to grow. One day you look at them and say, Oh, you're just growing like a weed. But as they do what they're supposed to do, the byproduct is growth, and the Holy Spirit is the one that produces that growth, and you see this evidence in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is that fruit? Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, the inner happiness. It is a product of the Holy Spirit. So when James says... Counted all joy. This is not just some flip remark. This is not something superficial. Then encapsulates the mechanics of the Christian way of life and assumes that this, the people he's writing to are proceeding in spiritual growth. Now, this, these are the two power options in the Christian's life the Holy Spirit 
and the Word of God. Between those two, the Holy Spirit does not operate apart from the Word of God. The Word of God does not operate apart from the Holy Spirit. They work in tandem. When you have people saying, oh, I'm just being led by the Holy Spirit, it has nothing to do with the Word of God, that's mysticism. When you have people operating on the Word of God without the Holy Spirit, that's usually legalism. So you want to avoid both of those. The Holy Spirit has to work. That means you have to understand the mechanics of the Holy Spirit and basic issues like baptism of the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That brings us down here to point eight, which is that happiness is a result of God's grace. Happiness is a result of God's grace. It's not a result of the people in your life, the circumstances in your life, the things in your life, your possessions or events. Happiness is a result of God's grace, not people, circumstances, things, possessions, or, or, or events. God's grace found a way to share His perfect happiness with you in a way that provides you stability, contentment, tranquility, without uh, any reference to the circumstances, the people, or the events in your life. That brings us to point nine, which is the means of implementing inner happiness in your life. How do you do this? What's the tool? You know, if I say, apply rebound, apply confession, what do you do? Bow your head and you admit or acknowledge your sins to God. You know exactly what to do. Faith rest drill. How do you apply the faith rest drill? Well, you learn some promises, you mix them with faith. Uh, unconditional love for all mankind. How do you do that? Well, the next guy, time you're cut off in traffic, you don't yell at the guy and you don't get out of fellowship and you treat him with a little understanding and compassion. So that's, uh, that's important. But how do you implement inner happiness? What's the key? The key is gratitude. So now we come to that all-important doctrine, the doctrine of gratitude. The degree to which you ha- exhibit gratitude for the circumstances in life, the situations in life, is the degree to which you will experience inner happiness. So, by way of introduction, two points. Introduction to the doctrine of gratitude. Point one, gratitude is a tool for measuring the progress of the spiritual life in the soul. Gratitude is a tool for measuring the progress of the spiritual life in the soul and is the means for implementing inner happiness. Gratitude is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in making the benefits of the spiritual life of the church age believer pleasing to his mind. Once again, gratitude is a tool for measuring the progress of the spiritual life in the soul and for implementing inner happiness. Gratitude is a ministry of God the Holy Spirit in making the benefits of the spiritual life of the church age pleasing to the mind. Point number two in terms of introduction. Spiritual progress in the soul of the believer is based on the consistent use of the filling of the Holy Spirit and learning and assimilating the Word of God. As doctrine increases in the mentality of your soul, you begin to move towards grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. You begin to understand all that God has provided for you that develops your level of appreciation for life. You understand the mechanics of testing and why you have these tests, and that, in turn, increases your, your gratitude because you understand what the dynamics are. 
that these are not just random events knocking you around willy-nilly, but there is a design and a purpose, and God is overruling everything such that no testing is going to come upon you that is, be, that is outside of his plan or beyond his control. So that brings us to, after the introduction, to point two. Gratitude is described in four scriptures. This is the second point. Gratitude is described in four scriptures. The first scripture is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. First Thess 5.18. In everything, in everything, key word, in, in everything. That refers to whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. One of the biggest problems facing people in life today is they have no capacity for gratitude. See, gratitude... Gratitude and grace come from the same root word in the Latin. Gratitude is your response to grace. That's why this begins to develop as a result of grace orientation. You don't have grace orientation, you can never start to develop true biblical gratitude. It's God's will that you thank Him in every situation, for every situation. No one can fulfill this verse, this mandate, if you don't have doctrine in your soul. So as you begin to accumulate doctrine in your soul, doctrinal orientation, understanding grace, grace orientation, then the consequence is you begin to develop gratitude. As you develop gratitude, you begin to imperceptibly develop inner happiness, tranquility, contentment, because you know God's in control. He's provided this. You can be grateful. When your focus is on God and in gratitude, then the byproduct is tranquility. Ephesians 5.20 is the second verse. Always be thankful for all things. In other words, give thanks for all things. It's not in everything. That's in every circumstance. But be thankful for or with reference to all things. To God, even the Father, through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is not just something we run through in prayer. Father, thank you for this and thank you for that. But it is an attitude of the soul. Not just an expression. Not just walking through the words saying the phrases, but truly being grateful for what God has for you, whatever it is. Because frankly, we don't deserve a thing. If God gave us what we deserve, we would all be roasting in hell. Think about it. That's what grace means. That's what common grace means. Common grace has to do with the things that God provides for everybody, believer or unbeliever. The air we breathe, the food we eat, all of this is part of common grace. So we're not only recipients of God's common grace, but as believers, recipients of His saving grace and His special plan for us and all of the many manifold assets that He's provided us so that we can grow to spiritual maturity and experience all of His fullness. Third passage, Colossians 2.7, having been rooted and grounded and having been edified in Christ and being stabilized by means of doctrine as you have been taught, overflowing with thanksgiving. So the consequence here of doctrinal orientation you begin to grow spiritual, spiritually is you overflow with thanksgiving. So gratitude is a measure 
of your spiritual growth. Colossians 1.12 Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us for a share in the endowment of the saints. Brings us to point number three. Gratitude here is not directed toward other people but towards God. See, the issue is not people. The issue is, is God. Most, of, most Christians are running around trying to get right with people so they can feel like they're, they're right with God. The issue in the Scripture is get right with God and then you'll be okay with people. People are not the issue. God's the issue. Gratitude is directed towards God in response to His grace and His provision. It is not necessarily directed towards people. That doesn't mean you don't express gratitude to people. That's just part of good manners. And that's something that everybody ought to be sensitive to, especially as believers, at the very least, you ought to be operating on good manners. You know, husbands, you ought to be uh, holding the door open for your wife. Every time you go out to the car, you ought to be opening the door for your wife, treating her with that that respect and demonstrating that. I don't know about up here, but down, down south, that's one thing I appreciate, is the importance of, of good manners and treating people uh, with honor and dignity and what it goes back to is the fact that, that we're all in the image of God, so we need to treat one another with respect and dignity and elevating one another. Teaching your kids good manners to say please and thank you and yes, sir, showing respect. Showing respect for other people just because they're people. And everybody ought to be doing that. And gratitude is just one of those things that people do things for us to express that gratitude and, and demonstrate that gratitude. You know, little things like sending thank you notes. Just, just basic good etiquette. And yet we don't even do that much anymore in a hectic society because we're too self-centered and consumed with our own situation. But gratitude takes the focus off of ourselves, onto God and onto others. Psalm 119.11 Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. If our relationship with God is correct, then it will overflow into our relationships with other people. But it starts with God and goes to people. It doesn't start with people and then go to God. So the development of our gratitude, the measure of your gratitude, reflects the maturity of your relationship with God. And gratitude is a measure also of your capacity for fellowship with God and for life, for happiness, for love, and for the ability to solve problems in your life. We'll stop there for right now. We'll come back and start next week. We'll continue the doctrine of gratitude. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the provisions you've given us to handle every situation in life. We thank you for understanding the fact that you want to share your happiness with us. And that comes only through spiritual growth, through learning doctrine, assimilating that into our soul and applying it. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us to focus on gratitude in response to you and your grace in our lives and all that you have given us. And may that overflow in our lives an example and an illustration to others of how you have transformed us and are transforming us one day at a time into the image, the likeness, the character of Jesus Christ. Pray that God the Holy Spirit would remind us of these things and bring them home to us in the coming week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.